Hey, Chef Dean here. Gotta tell you about Rosa Grande pepperoni for your pizzas. These little beauties feature a cool cup and char look and a premium taste. They'll bring your customers back like they were boomerangs. Check them out at HormelCupAndChar.com. Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Hassel Avizlis to Table Talk. Hassel has built a career in the hospitality and food service industry for more than two decades, working primarily in restaurants, event production, and entrepreneurship. In 2018, after three years of struggling with mental illness and trauma, Hassel was inspired to co-found Not 9 to 5, a nonprofit that empowers food service workers like herself Hassel's strategic planning abilities helped grow Not 9 to 5 from a series of workshops, panels, and webinars into a global vehicle for change. Her work has contributed to a worldwide hospitality revolution to create work environments that are inclusive and proactive rather than top-down and reactive. Hassel has used her experience, her social capital, and intelligence to speak up for those without the power to make change. Good morning, Hassel, and welcome to Table Talk. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, as I was saying earlier, I've wanted to do this for a while. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to free up some time to share that uh, time with us today. Um, I have to say, I really admire all that you're doing in the industry um, over the last few years and really you're really working hard to make change and, and that's amazing to watch. And I think after two years of very intensive uh, change in the industry, I think there's been a lot of impact and, and a lot of change that has started to filter through and, um, and it's uh, people like you that are leading the way. So it's great to have you here today with us. Thank you. Yes, I agree. I mean, definitely our industry is one of the hardest hit by the pandemic. And we've lost so many businesses. We've lost so many people um, due to many reasons. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's very complex reality that we're still coming back to and adjusting to. I I really, from all of my interactions with different aspects of the industry, whether it's frontline food service workers or whether it's owner operators. Um, it's, it's definitely not back, you know, to what it back. I don't like to use the word normal, but you know what I mean? It's not back to like a regular running business. Um, so yeah, we're still, we're still in it. We're still recovering. For sure. Um, you know, we'd like to think the pandemic is over because we're trying to get out and do things more than we were, but it's, it's definitely not over. And I think it will take the industry quite a long time to recover to the levels that we were experiencing prior to the pandemic. Um, and the host of changes that have happened through labor shortages and everything else that that's going to impact for a while. Um, I have to say, I really like the name of your company, you know, not nine to five. It's, it's really unique. And I would love to know more about how that came to fruition and what really fueled you to, to get this all going. Of course, I'd love to share my story. Um, so nine to five, first of all, the name it's, 
because of the topic and the industry we work in. So nothing about mental health and substance use challenges runs on those hours and nothing about the hospitality or culinary industry works on those hours either. And so we felt like it was just a really good fit. Um, initially, there was another co-founder, but I've been running it solo since December 2020. Um, and I, oh, I've seen so much changed since when we first started not nine to five um and it's it's very hopeful it's very promising um and at the same time the reasons why i started not nine to five still exist and so there's still so much more um that needs to be addressed and um focused on and invested in and you know have people really learn more about i think that for me, why I think of not nine to five as a love letter to my 20 year old self. Um, this is the work I needed at that age when I was really not okay. And I worked in an industry that told me to check my emotions at the door. I was constantly reminded that I was disposable. I was constantly in environments where there was a lot of toxic um, characteristics and they were very normalized including, you know, abuse of all kinds. And, you know, you're just meant to repress and suppress it all. Mm -hmm. Eventually that just wasn't feasible for me and, and impossible. I had, I've in my lifetime, I've had many, uh, what I guess some would call quote unquote mental health crisis. Um, I've unfortunately and fortunately <laughs> experienced various of those. And one of them what like I think a lot a lot of my first one was due to workplace trauma that mm -hmm. I had experienced from the industry and of course this language I'm using now like I never had at that time right of course vocabulary is not abundant <laughs> in the industry um mm -hmm. you know it's it's talked about very differently and what was happening is I just felt like it was the elephant in every room every hotel every bar every restaurant that I worked in it just felt like everyone around me is experiencing mental health challenges. Everyone around me is having a complicated relationship with substances and yeah, no one's talking about it and there's no access to support and there's no resources and there's no, it's all very like shame and stigma and silence, you know? So after that, I just, you know, got to a point where I just kind of, like I said, had a bit of a, what you would call breakdown. And after leaving the industry for a little bit, getting, you know, seeking and accepting help, getting in touch with a variety of different resources and support. Um, I was able to come back to the industry. And over time, uh, when I started my own business, I was very open about my mental health. I no longer prescribed to having shame about these mm -hmm. experiences, depression, anxiety, you know, um, trauma. They're not who I am. They're experiences that I have. And so understanding that obviously took the shame away. Like I wouldn't be ashamed to tell you I broke my elbow, you know? Right. So why should I be ashamed to tell you I had an anxiety attack yesterday? Um, you know, they're both experiences that we have in our bodies and our minds. And so basically all of that led to eventually starting not nine to five and wanting to just initially it was about just growing awareness because mm -hmm. it was a grassroots movement. It was an organized, it was not an organization yet. It was just like a, an initiative, I guess you would call it. Right. And, and over time, 
it really started to just take a life of its own, um, as most of these things do. So it's not actually a company. It's, a, it's an incorporated nonprofit. So we're a global leader now in mental health advocacy for the food service and hospitality sector. We create our own industry-specific resources, uh, education and training, as well as share other resources that are not our own. Um, I really believe in industry-specific. I think it's really important because our industry is quite specific and different <laughs> from others. Um, and yeah, we're just working you know, towards now more on the education and the training piece, more on the um, systemic change, you know, how can we work with leaders to hold them more accountable mm -hmm. for their responsibility as employers for what happens or doesn't happen in the workplace. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of my story and how Not 9 to 5 came to be. Well, that's wonderful. And you've touched on, you know, a lot of important um, points in, in, in that explanation. And obviously you've worked in the industry from a very young age. And you spoke about feeling like the elephant in the room. What is it about the industry that has had this um, reputation for such a long time where perhaps in the past, not perhaps, definitely it wasn't acknowledged as much. And in recent years, probably in the last decades, a lot of this has started to come out and you know, start percolating more and more. Um, we talk about toxicity and, you know, is it the long hours? Is it the, 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 the machismo that's going on in the industry? What is it that allowed all of this toxicity to, to just seep through in so many areas? Great question. And I'm really glad you asked that because I think a lot of times we don't look back to how did we get here? <laughs> you know, and then so the same problems just repeat themselves because we don't understand the source of the problem. Um, so I really appreciate you asking that. So I think, I mean, I could talk about this for days. I could write you novels about this, but I'm going to keep it short and sweet for the podcast. And basically, it if you look at the history of hospitality, it's got, it's a very problematic history. Um, we have a quite troubling foundation, um, quite harmful roots. And a lot of it stems from systems of oppression that are built into hospitality. A lot of these things still exist. And we don't even realize like very, like one of my favorite things to point out to people and they, and they kind of are taken aback. They're like, oh, you're right. Is even how we lay out restaurants for the most part, we tend to hide the staff. We tend mm -hmm. to put them away from the guests almost to make them invisible, you know, and, and that is, that is impactful when you are the person being hidden away, you know, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of this comes because a lot of, like I said, hospitality has roots and legacies um, going all the way back to enslavement, you know, going all the way back to when, racism was much was not just structural and institutionalized but like rampant and obvious mm -hmm. and not hidden at all um so i think the systems of oppression need to be acknowledged racism misogyny ableism um all exist and still exists and we are still learning how to you know create safer workplaces for folks mm -hmm. um i think there's also an immense influence of white supremacy culture that still exists in our industry. Uh, I, I feel like our industry is like a mini version of our bigger society. <laughs> you know, it's just, microcosm, yeah. it's exactly, it's a microcosm. It's just more yeah. intense. 
So everything you see in society, you see in our industry, is just more intensified, amplified, and in, you know, closer quarters. Um, so that is part of it. I think going to your point, toxic work environments. So one thing that really helped me a lot earlier this year was there was a study that came out um Charles Lull I believe in Donald's um and they published it in MIT Sloan mm-hmm. and it was basically about the five characteristics of what makes a toxic work environment and when I read this all I could think about was this is the hospitality industry <laughs> um you know so number one is non-inclusive right mm-hmm. so identity related it's the largest predictor of turnover it's exclusionary it's you know you're keeping same 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 you know, that's why we see so many cis, hetero, white males that are leaders in our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, disrespectful is number two. Number three is unethical behavior and dishonesty. There's a lot of that in our industry. There's a lot of things that are hidden that are unethical and are not, they don't ever see the light of day. Um, a lot of lies are told from leaders, employers to their employees. Um, number four is cutthroat. Number five is abusive managers. And going to the abusive manager's point, I i mean, cutthroat, I see between employee to employee a lot, unfortunately, when they're like, it's almost like crabs in a bucket where mm-hmm. staff are, they have this, like our industry kind of conditions us to have a bit of a scarcity mindset where we think I need to win for in order for me to win, you need to lose. Right. And so the cutthroat comes out in that way a lot. And then the abusive managers, I see this in that a lot of restaurants, hotels, bars, don't invest enough in leadership training. And so you oftentimes find yourself as a manager because you've just been there the longest, you know, or you're the oldest or whatever. It's not always because you have the skills to lead. And so anyway, this study just really validated a lot of what I've experienced and seen and hear from the industry. But Mm -hmm. to your earlier point, I also think there's aspects of our industry, um, that also play into this, like the brigade system influence. Right. Um, you know, when if anyone's listening, is like, I don't know what that is. The kitchen brigade system, or in French, they originally called it the cuisine de brigade. You know, uh, the whole purpose of it was that kitchens um, can work to maximum efficiency. And I talk about the influence of the brigade system, even though I never worked in the kitchen, because it its influence seeps out into the rest of the restaurant or the hotel or the bar or whatever um, the business is. It has such an intense influence that even the front of house, even if you've never in the culinary space, you still are part of it. Um, it has a military style influence that creates workplaces that lead to exploitation, all in the name of efficiency. And it leaves very little room for adequate uh, nourishment, rest, pay, safety or support. There's a constant pressure, you know, to follow the chain of command, whatever costs, disconnect your, you know, disconnects you from yourself right. um, and at the mercy of the leader's orders. And this structure really needs to be challenged and redesigned um, for us to evolve. It is, as you say, quite militaristic. And I think the whole notion behind it was was based on that kind of, you know, those kinds of principles. Um, it also led to the whole yes chef uh, notion where, you know, the chef is, is 
um, sacrosanct and everybody has to, to listen to that. And, and I see that changing now more and more with a lot of Canadian chefs who have, um, you know, not been uh, grounded so much in, in the European traditions, but more North American. And I know I was speaking to Chris Locke from Marvin uh, recently, and he was saying that he doesn't want any of that yes chef in his kitchen. He doesn't want people to talk to him like that because he's trying to flatten that whole um, that whole structure. So do you think that has perpetuated a, a lot of this uh, this approach in, in hospitality? Has that kind of been the mainstay? The brigade system? Oh, yes, oh. the whole notion of yes, chef and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It has. I mean, you see it everywhere. And even that's what I'm saying, even still to this day, I know that many places, like you say, are trying to flatten um, organizational structure to be less triangle, you know, hierarchy and more, um, I guess, distributed, distributed leadership, I think is what they call it. And to distribute that power is, is like, I can't underestimate how important that is. Um, And, and we, we tend to think that, you know, chefs want that. And I, I mean, you just gave an example of someone that doesn't. And I would argue that a, a lot of them actually don't. They've been been told that this is the way it is and this right. is how you lead as a chef. But in reality, I mean, can you imagine having that much pressure? <laughs> I don't think that's a very enjoyable experience as someone who has been a leader and has owned my own company and has to be, you know, you get decision fatigue, you run out, you burn yourself out quite quickly if Very you're true. not sharing this ability to be part of the decision-making process. So I'm a big fan of um, centering the voices of those most affected. So if you're an owner operator and you don't actually work in your establishment, you really need to not be making the decisions for the folks that are actually there every day. Right. You really need to be gaining their input involving their ideas, you know, incorporating their experience into your decision-making process. And that doesn't mean that everything they ask for, you're going to do. That doesn't mean that, you know, you're just going to like follow along to whatever they're saying. It just means that you're making more informed decisions and actually involving um, your team in those decisions. Um, It helps them feel more seen and heard as well which creates a much more um, psychologically safe workplace. Hey guys, it's Chef D. I'm here to tell you about Primoro Bacon Flavored Crumbles. These little bundles of wonder add real bacon flavor anywhere on the menu without crazy high bacon prices. Get a sample at BaconCrumbles.com and see for yourself. And so we've talked a lot about structural changes and the flaws in in, in this structure that has existed for many, many years. And I know the pandemic has kind of shone a light on that in the last two years, probably more than ever. Um, And you're starting to see some of those barriers kind of fall, uh, although it's taken a lot longer than we probably would like to see. What do you think owners, I mean, apart from what you're saying now involving people more in the decision-making, how challenging is it going to break some of those structures moving forward that have existed for a long, long time? Even tipping, as an example, you talk about racism and and how that was grounded in a lot of racism uh, from the past. And we're starting to see that kind of, you know, there's been so much debate about tipping in the last few years, but it's still there. And even though some companies, some restaurants are trying to get rid of that, 
sometimes it's hard to break through because obviously people want to earn more money and that's the potential to earn is there. How do we change those systems in a way that will be more effective for everybody, but that where we don't have to wait 20 years to do it? Well, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but it did take us centuries to get here. Exactly. So I don't believe it's going to only take 20 years for us yeah. to get out. Um, it may take longer. And because what is required for actual systemic change is government support. You cannot put this kind of a request on small businesses, on medium-sized businesses, and frankly, on an industry that has been one of the hardest hit due to the pandemic. Our industry is made up of some of the most marginalized groups of our population, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and our industry does not um, have nearly anywhere remotely close to the same infrastructure as so many other industries that actually do get bailouts and such. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sure. even in Canada, for example, like we don't have lobby groups. Um, there's a few that advocate on our behalf, but they're not um, necessarily the most well-informed, I find, on the reality of what our, you know, frontline service workers are facing and or even what the smallest businesses, you know, have to, you know, deal with. And, you know, one example of this, like you said, is tipping. Um, there's no way that we're going to be able to change that system that, by the way, is a legacy of times of enslavement as well. Mm -hmm. um, and and actually does cause people really intense, um, <clears throat> often really intense mental health challenges and often puts a lot of folks in danger, um, you know, in very, you know, unsafe environments where you're working for your adequate compensation because your employer isn't providing it. Exactly. Um, especially as a, as a female, where like <clears throat> being promiscuous, for example, is like very normalized and expected of you. Um, it's, it can't just be erased. Like there are some people that are doing it and I think that's great. There's some businesses all across Canada that, are becoming living wage employers and are eradicating tipping and are abolishing a lot of these systems. And that's great. But is it realistic that it's going to happen like industry wide? I really don't think so without government support in, in just the same way as, um, you know, here in Ontario to work with alcohol, to sell and uh, serve alcohol, you have to get smart serve certified. And that's a legal requirement and you have no choice. <laughs> There's no ifs, ands, or buts. You just have to do your smart serve. You get certified, then you can be a bartender, what, you know, what have you. I think it needs to be government mandated. I think it needs to be a change that mm -hmm. happens that's forced on us. Um, right. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the government has to design this for us. I think industry has to be involved with like how that looks, how it works, given time periods for how to phase in and phase out of things. All of that requires our involvement. But I do think we need their support and their backing because putting, like I said, putting it on these small businesses is just not realistic. I can tell you even from things that I do, a lot of times if you leave it up to them, you won't do it. It just doesn't get done. And I don't think it's because they don't care. That's the other thing. I think oftentimes we think, oh, they just don't care. I don't actually think it's that simple. I think it's quite complicated. It and is. I think that sometimes when you have it mandated, it, you know, you, you just do it because 
the same way we all pay our taxes, right? Like, it's not like you have fun doing that. <laughs> most, right. most of us don't. Um, and so, but you know, you have to. And so you make time for it to happen. And in order for those things like tips and such to change, I do think it requires that um, across the board. And we've seen this even in the US. I mean, we're 10% of their population, right? We're 10% of their population. And we I've talked to so many people across the US that all say the same thing. Some places can pull it off. That's great. Is it realistic across the board? Not unless it's, you know, an actual industry-wide thing. I think a lot of operators would agree with that totally. And I've seen, like you said, in the States where they've abolished tipping in certain restaurants and then they've gone back to it because nobody else abolished it and they couldn't compete on the same level. Exactly. So so it's going to take time for sure. Um, Hassel, with all this toxicity that has existed for years and now the pandemic shining a light on it and people being so overstressed and overwhelmed, having lived in these challenging times, mental health awareness has really risen um, a lot in terms of awareness in the last few years. Is it where we want it to be? No. Um, Is the stigma still there? Probably. Um, But it definitely has grown and changed in 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 a big, big way. But what can operators do to create that safe environment for their employees? Because I think over the last few years, they've all come to realize how important employees are to to all of their businesses. When you start losing employees and there's shortages and you can't run your business, it's it's a reality check. And I think everybody knows that, you know, they have to change, but sometimes they don't know where to start. So if I'm an operator and I want to create that safe environment for my team, what do I do? Where do I go? Where do I start? I love this question because I have many answers, but I have a really simple one to start with. So I would say the first start, the first thing to do to start is to acknowledge that you haven't been doing this. So I think it's free. It costs nothing. It's really hard to do. I understand that as a leader, I've had to hold myself accountable before, but I think the first thing is acknowledging to your team. I am here to acknowledge that we haven't been doing this, um, but we want to, you know, move forward in a different direction and, and involving them in the process, right? Cause your team is going to have all kinds of thoughts and feelings, um, sure. you know, about what they've been experiencing. And this is not about therapy sessions. You know, this is not about that. This is, you can do this in a very, um, boundaried way that, you know, is not just about confessing this and the other. I think sometimes anonymous surveys work really great for this and just like, you know, what kind of resources are you all wanting to see from us or how can we better support you in the workplace around your mental health um, and that that kind of thing. Because I just, I, I really think it's important. Oftentimes leaders, we think we know best or we think that we actually understand what others are experiencing and we, and we don't, <laughs> we just mm-hmm. don't. Um, so never assume, always ask. Uh, the second thing that I would say is we developed a, a certification program and I am a big advocate of le- all leaders, owner operator, anyone that's making a business decision that impacts the workplace, Mm -hmm. um, get connected certified. So we developed a workplace mental health certification program. We called it connected. Um, we have an online educational platform called connecting 
And we don't spell connecting properly. <laughs> it is intentional. It's C-N-E-C-T, which is change needs everyone coming together. And although that sounds very like, yay, it's actually uh, a way for us to indicate to you that this involves you. It involves everyone. It's not just about, oh, my staff need to get this training and I'm good. No, no, no. Everybody needs this training. Everybody needs to get on the same page because like I said earlier, it's taken us centuries to mm-hmm. get here. We're not on the same uh, spot in our learning, right? You may know some things. I may know other things. Our team may know various it's bits. Our leadership might be running the same way for the last five years and are out of touch with vocabulary of mental health, you know, how things to do and don't do. Um, What is psychological safety? How do you foster psychological safety? What are the primary concerns of the hospitality industry? What are the signs and symptoms that we can look out for to identify, you know, and adequately respond to our teams? Mm -hmm. Um, So our, our certification program offers that. We help you develop your support skills and you learn not just how to, you know, you know, use vocabulary for what you're experiencing, but also um, for others around you. I think that's, it's really affordable. We charge $44 Canadian. Mm, that's great. It's very affordable and it's inspired and influenced by a uh, workplace, sorry, a workplace tool that's called Mental Health First Aid. It's uh, a global mental health training program. And I took it many years ago, but I felt like it was not at all, um, beneficial to our industry just because of the way it was written and how it was created. So I basically made our own version with the team. Mm -hmm. I've worked with mental health professionals, legal professionals, DEI, you know, professionals, and I created a more intersectional approach to this kind of learning. And I also tried to come at it through a lived experience lens because that's how I do everything with my lived experience and, and including a lot of voices from the industry. So there's also videos and audio stories in there to humanize the topics. And just so everyone knows also, this is as much as all of this work is founded in instinct, it is cemented in data. So we did it. We've done a lot of our own research. We have done research projects and, you know, hired research teams because this is not my expertise. Um, And so this is all, you know, also cemented in data as well. So getting, you know, that kind of training is a great first start. I don't believe that's where it ends. That's just like your foundation. Um, Just like anything else, you have to supplement on top of it. And I think creating a workplace mental health strategy for your business is part of that. So if you look at your, you know, business and you create marketing strategies for the year, you create, you know, other types of strategies for the year. This is kind of like that. And you might say, okay, we're going to get all of our managers and leaders certified in Q1. And then in Q2, we're going to host a webinar of some kind based on, right. Based on what the staff is asking. Okay. The staff wants to talk about substance use. Great. We'll host a webinar about substance use in the workplace. Maybe Q3 involves something for the team to do that's not work related, some sort of team building, I don't know, create a baseball team or go to ax throwing. I don't know. Every team is different. Um, You know, in Q4 might involve some more training of some other kind, you know, for the rest of the team that maybe isn't certified or taking the leadership to another level, because there's so many other great organizations, not just ours that offer incredible leadership training, um, coaching and all kinds of other things. This industry as much as it has been troubled for so long, I have to tell you, 
I never thought I would see the impact and the change I've already seen in the last two years um, of so much change, like more than I thought I would see in my lifetime. So as much as I am looking at data of like, you know, suicide on the rise and all these other things that are absolutely devastating and heartbreaking, ultimately I do feel hopeful because there is so much more available out there. And I don't usually go out and pitch my services or our work. They come to us. And so even that happening, that was not happening pre-pandemic, by the way. (laughs) So even that happening is uh, making leaving me feel quite hopeful. Well, that's interesting you say that because that was going to be my next question. Based on your perspective of what you've seen, do you think there has been improvement? So it's wonderful that, that you feel that there has been. Is the stigma any lesson than it used to be in terms of mental health? Because as you said, in the past, people didn't want to talk about it. They would hide it. Do you feel that that's now a little bit more open? Unfortunately, only a little bit better. Not really. Um, so in 2021, we did a research study, like I said, and we asked folks about their mental health struggles in the workplace. Um, 60, 67% said they keep their struggles to themselves and try not to let it show. So that's still two thirds. Um, yeah, it's a lot of people. And so maybe the one third is what I'm talking about, you know, of the people that are much more open and not, you know, so concerned with shame and stigma, but most of us are still unfortunately keeping it to ourselves. Um, why is that happening? We ask that as well. And a lot of it is around job safety, um, Mm -hmm. perception, you know, perception of like your reputation of who you are and such in the workplace. Um, and, and that the other, the other aspect of that is that, um, it is different between part-time and full-time employees, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately, part-time employees over index, um, on like substance use for relief, for example, and they're more prone to absenteeism or attrition. So what that basically means in like everyday language is that if you're a part-time employee, you're more likely to either quit yourself or call in sick even though you're experiencing mental health challenges. So you're still keeping it to yourself, but you maybe because you don't work there full time, you don't feel like you can. So it really does depend also on the role you play in, in the workplace. Um, Mm -hmm. We saw a lot of differences, like I said, between part-time and full-time, but also even gender. Um, So I think, I think a big part of it is, like I said earlier, it's just going to take a lot longer than, we want it to, um, or than we think it, it, it takes, I mean, change takes time. And of course I've learned a lot about how the change, you know, change in human behavior works when you study like systems of change and you study, um, you know, how the brain works even in resistance to change. So even if something is helpful, mm-hmm. um, you may resist it. And even though something is harmful, you may, um, continue it because it's familiar. So our brains are so resistant to change, right? We're so wired um, to resist change, even though it's so funny because change is the only constant in our lives, (laughs) Um, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and so understanding that and having more compassion for people, you know, and more patience for people, I think is really important. Another thing I I did want to mention as well, and I realized I didn't mention in the previous question that you asked me is 
I, I think one of the most important things that anyone in this industry can do, whether you're a leader or whether you're a culinary student and you're just mm-hmm. entering the workforce, I don't care uh, what your role is, but learning more about mental health um, vocabulary and just basic education is going to help you become so much better equipped for when you encounter this in the workplace. Because I can tell you, it's not an if you're going to, it's a when. Um, And if it's not you, it's people around you. Um, And so one of the terms, like I said earlier, that that I've learned in the last couple of years is psychological safety. And if you don't know what that is, I highly encourage you to look it up, read more about it. My definition of it is I like to use very everyday language. I don't prescribe to academic or clinical um, language because I, I find that it creates- People won't understand it. Yeah, people won't understand it. I also find that it creates like a wall, like a divide between people. Um, so I like to say it how it is. What it is really is that your team or people in this environment feel that it's safe to make mistakes, be vulnerable with one another, take risks and give and receive feedback without any fear of negative consequences to how they're perceived or in the workplace, for example, to their job itself. So that means that you're not scared to tell your boss that you made a mistake, um, fearing that you might get fired, you know, it's so important. And so learning more about psychological safety has totally shifted um, now how I see how to move forward. You know, it's kind of one of those like foundational principles of listen, are we going to switch a restaurant that's toxic into a psychologically safe the next day? Of course not. No, of course not. But if we all can agree to get on the same page, that that's the direction that we're moving towards, Mm -hmm. it is unbelievable. The changes that happen. So we talked about the fact that restaurants are starting to, you know, get better in some respect that you've seen more change in the last two years for those companies that aren't able to make those changes as dramatically as we would like to see, are there still signs of things that they should be looking out for to know that their staff perhaps are suffering and maybe are afraid to speak up? If I were a restaurant operator, what would I be looking for as visible signs that there's something amiss here, even if you don't know what that is? That's a really great question. And I mean, obviously I'm not going to keep repeating myself like a broken record, but like, obviously all of this is in our course. So I will share one of our tools right now that is in our course. But if, if you really are looking to learn more, I highly recommend um, you get certified. So one of the things that we include um, is the five signs of emotional suffering. And this is not our own tool. So this is not something that I developed. Um, it comes from an organization called Change Direction and changedirection.org if you want their website. And basically what they did was they started to want, they wanted to identify signs of emotional suffering due to people that they'd known that had died by suicide. Um, and so they were looking at this from a lens of like suicide prevention. So like, like you're saying, how can we identify mm-hmm. certain signs where we are like, oh, I need to get, and I always say, it's not about getting alarmed. It's about getting curious. So if you notice these things, get curious, ask more questions, um, make yourself available to this person. Um, you know, you're not here to solve anyone's problem or fix anything. Um, one thing I always say as well is, you know, we have this misconception 
with um, supporting someone with their mental health, that you're there to be like a counselor or a therapist. And I'm here to tell you, please do not do that. Um, you are not trained and you, you, you know, likely don't have maybe all the skills to really help this person, but what you can do is help them feel less alone. And, right. you know, all you can do is validate their experience. And what you can do is learn about active listening, right? And what you're there really to do is just to let them know that, you know, they're seen and heard and, and, and ideally with consent, um, connecting them to resources that might be able to help them in the same way in a kitchen. If I slice my hand open, you know, and you were my manager, I wouldn't expect you to be stitching me up. Right. You'd just be helping connect me to the help I need. You connect me to the medical attention I need. It's the same thing with mental health. You're not here to, you know, solve my depression, but you can maybe talk to me, listen to me and connect me to resources that might help me. That's um, a great point. Yeah. So I always like to just make that distinction because I think sometimes it's a misunderstanding there. Um, so going back to the five signs of emotional suffering. So the first one is personality change. If you notice someone you've been working with for a really long time, all of a sudden their personality seems really different. They used to be really outgoing. Now they're really quiet. They were really quiet. Now they're really, you know, loud and, and there's like erratic behavior. Um, if you notice those kinds of like changes, um, there be there, they are just different. And, and, and especially if it doesn't fit with their values to who you knew them to be before, that's something to get curious about. Number two is agitated. So I know this with me, with my depression, like irritability is a very big symptom of depression and anxiety. Um, if they seem uncharacteristically angry, anxious, restless, or moody, if you notice, um, they're having trouble controlling their temper, um, and unable to calm down. That's another really big one. It's one thing to kind of blow up, but then you kind of like lose it. If you really, they can't seem to get out of it and it just keeps going. Um, so those kinds of extreme situations are things to get curious about. The third one is withdrawn. So someone that starts to isolate themselves more, um, any kind of change <laughs> in typical sociability that they used to have, they're more, so if they're, um, pulling away from family and friends, mm -hmm. they're pulling away from the workplace. They're just more silent than, than they have been in the past. Um, probably a good time to maybe pull them aside and, and ask some questions and check in. Um, and the fourth one is poor self-care. So that's something that often you see with personal hygiene deteriorating, or another one is um, increasing substance use. Maybe this person didn't used to, you know, consume as much as before and all of a sudden are now doing a lot. Um, it's one of the most common coping mechanisms in our industry. Number five is hopelessness. So someone that just says things like, what's the point? You know, why, right. why bother? Um, someone that seems overcome with despair, someone that seems that has no hope or has feelings of worthlessness. Um, you know, that is something that can often indicate uh, suicidal thinking. So those are the five signs. To That's look very at helpful, I think, for everybody listening. And I'm sure that the flip side of that is that there's probably a lot of people in management and leaders who are also suffering through all yes. of those because the pandemic has changed their life and put so much more stress on them. So this isn't just an employee thing. No. It could also be an employer a manager, an owner, what have you, it affects everybody. 
Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, human, if you're human, you have mental health. So just like your physical health and it can be fluid, it can fluctuate from one day to another, one moment to another. Um, so you're absolutely right. So Hassel, um, do you think that there's a role for educators in, in creating also a healthier workplace environment, you know, as, as educators and uh, people who are grooming tomorrow's future leaders, should mental health be part of a curriculum and in the schools as well? It's so funny because we didn't talk about this, but I love that you're asking me this question. Um, absolutely, yes. Our our connected certification that I was talking about earlier is that's kind of our our big focus right now is getting it into educational institutions. You know, we really believe in a Great. bottom, a top down, right? It, leaders have influence, so we want to obviously hold leaders accountable and and get them trained. But bottom up, you know, the next generation of this industry needs to ideally come in better equipped for what they are actually going to face and experience. Um, so we have our connected certification program in Centennial College. All of their faculty and staff are currently doing it. And in the next, yeah, it's really exciting. And then the next semester, their students will start. And University of Guelph also has um, put it into the curriculum of one of I their- I wasn't aware of that, wonderful. Yeah, one of their hospitality programs. And this is all very new. We've been working on this for years to try and get into the schools, but as you can imagine, <laughs> there's a lot of bureaucracy and, uh, you know- oh, levels, I'm sure. Yeah, levels of approval and such. Um, but yes, I couldn't agree with you more. Educators do play a role in this. And I can tell you, George Brown College is also- um, one that we're talking to as well as the Toronto Metropolitan University, um, trying to get in there as well. And I think their role is acknowledging how much influence they have over this next generation. For sure. And because we've been neglecting this topic for so long, it absolutely does make sense to better equip folks with this kind of education, vocabulary, tools, skills, and resources um, so that they can be better equipped, like I said, for what they're what they're going into, into the work when they, when they join the workforce. So we're running out of time and I, and I don't want to keep you too long, but um, I know we haven't talked a lot about anti-racism and I'm sure, you know, that is a big factor in creating a lot of mental health issues too. Um, can we speak about that for, for a moment? And, and, and then we'll try to wind down because I know that uh, we could keep this conversation going for hours <laughs> on end. So at some point we have to we have to come to a close. But how does anti-racism figure into the whole mental health equation? Hugely. Um, so thank you for asking this. I I feel you know as a this is audio. I'm a woman of color. Um, my parents are Chilean, and I very much have experienced racial trauma, and it obviously has deeply impacted my mental health at times in my life. Um, and I think it plays a huge role. Uh, we cannot ignore the systems in which we live in. Um, it's not on an individual, you know, self-care is important. And I'm a huge advocate of obviously taking care of yourself, taking care of your well-being, um, and acknowledging that even if you do, we still live in systems of harm. And, you know, a lot of that is racism. A lot of that is our, you know, society and white supremacy culture influence that we experience every day. The inequity in our industry and beyond in the world um, is something that affects our mental health. And so, you know, it is on industry leaders to create 
more diverse, inclusive, equitable, and accessible spaces on and offline um, that offer psychological safety for all. And why I like to talk about psychological safety so much is because it acknowledges this. It, it, the whole, if you have a psychologically safe workplace, you bring your authentic self to work. And if, you know, we all have different intersections that make us who we are and, you know, learning more about intersectionality, learning more about decolonizing our workplaces, um, learning more about anti-oppressive communication and how to foster anti-racism in the workplace. Like these are all things that all leaders need to hold themselves accountable on. Um, no one's going to come and save us and do this for us. We really have to do the learning ourselves. And then it's not even just about reading and learning. This is the other thing that I think often we get confused about. It's moving into practice and moving away from words and, you know, verbal conversations and more into action, Actions. right? Like what, what are you actually doing in the workplace that is helping your marginalized employees feel safer? Um, because safe is a word that is subjective. So if you think the workplace is safe and everyone there, including you, is white presenting, but I come in and I'm not white presenting, I might not feel the same way you do. And that doesn't mean that it's not safe for you, right? Like your experience is valid and it is safe for you. And for me, it may not feel that way because I don't feel like I get the same either um, offers for promotion or I don't feel like my voice gets the same amount of space or, you know, I don't get involved in the decision making process as much as my colleagues do. Um, it's very obviously complicated and layered and you could have an entire podcast about just really that, could. <laughs> yeah, just that topic alone. So I'm not here to simplify that. I want to acknowledge that this is complex and that, you know, and it is important to acknowledge how much it impacts our mental health. Um, there's so many microaggressions that happen in the workplace, especially in the hospitality industry mm -hmm. that literally never get talked about. Um, and I think if, unless we're centering the voices of those most affected, like I said earlier, what that means then is if you're trying to quote unquote, do better, be better, um, you need to go to those that are most marginalized in your workplace. And you need to ask them to be, ask them if they want to, obviously consent needs to be given, but if, if they're given an opportunity to be part of how we can create these workplaces in a different way away from the injustices of the past, um, then I think that that's like a good first step. Um, I think centering also harm reduction in all of this, because like I said to you earlier, I think the first step is acknowledging that there has been harm. Um, I think too often we like to skip to the solutions, but you need to not gaslight your team and you need to acknowledge that harm has been caused and that we're all complicit, you know, me included. I can tell you, I was part of the industry times in my life. There's many things I've done that I'm not proud of, or many times, maybe I didn't do anything, but I witnessed it and I didn't say anything. Didn't say anything right. And that makes me just as complicit, you know? So I think to reduce not just mental health stigma, but also reduce, you know, microaggressions reduce the harm that comes from racial trauma um is is part of involving and making sure you know you're always asking yourself who is in the room 
who's speaking and who's not. Um, and trying to get curious. Again, it's all about the curiosity. It's not about shaming yourself, feel guilty. That's not helpful for change. So you can feel it. You're, it's, not, it's natural. You're human. But don't dwell on that. You know, you need to really lean into the discomfort and lean into the curiosity of, um, of, of figuring out, you know, how to move forward because this stuff has no formula, right? Your workplace and my workplace, totally different. They might both be restaurants, but a restaurant's not a restaurant. <laughs> They're all sure. their own little ecosystem. So everything I've shared today, obviously you need to be catering to your own environment. Well, you've given us so much great uh, information and some wonderful suggestions and some great starting points. And as I said, we could go on forever, but I'm cognizant of our time. And, and I want to thank you for being here today to share some of your day with us on this very important topic. And um, as you said, I think there has been a lot of change in recent years. So we need to build on that positive change and move forward. Um, so we're not stuck in the same place forever. But any last words that you want to offer before we uh, sign off? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so lovely to get to know you and and great questions. Um, the last thing I would just say is if anyone's listening and is struggling with their mental health, to just remember that you're never as alone as you feel. And even if you can just remind yourself that whatever you're experiencing is temporary, that you reach out to someone and tell them how you really are feeling. It doesn't have to be someone you know. There's a great crisis text lines or hotlines you can call. I've used them You know, when I wasn't ready to talk to someone I knew. Or it can be someone you do know that can be there with you. Um, but yeah, just reminding folks that they're not as alone as they feel. It's a great reminder. So thanks again, Hassel, and uh, hope to see you in person soon. Same. Thank you again. Right. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.